However, standing by right now is the one and the only, Sean Mooney. Who? Mooney, everybody's got a price for the Million Dollar Man. After you threw him off through the announce table, Taker climbs back down, he gets in the ring, and he goes, see if he's breathing. So right before I called 911, I thought she'd fallen asleep. Kind of shook her a little bit to, to wake her up, and she did not respond. I don't go down to my, go to my grave testifying or whatever, swearing that Davey was not on drugs. If he was on drugs, the way Brett says, how does, I mean, how great does that make Davey? Are you laughing, Sean? I get off the track here all the time. Did you just laugh, Sean? If they would do a movie about your life, who would you want to play your part? <laughs> uh, well, George Clooney, of course. <laughs> who else could it be? Attention, Sean Mooney, you scum, you slime, you maggot. If there's no further questions, you're dismissed. Carry on, maggot. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to Primetime with Sean Mooney. How's your week been so far? I hope it's been good, not too stressful. Well, if it has been, I have a great stress reliever. You're listening to it. I've heard from a lot of people, you know, who drive a lot, many for a living, others with long drives to work, and uh, they say this is a great way for them to get to their destination. They listen to Primetime with Sean Mooney. It takes your mind off all that's going on in your life, and you get to hear great conversations. I mean, what could be better? So, you know, you could also help your friends out. You could, you can be that person. They're going to come back to you and say, man, thank you so much for telling me about Prime Time with Sean Mooney. My life is so much better now because I listen to those conversations, and when it's done, I just feel uh, like I've been through hours of therapy. Yeah. Well, okay. But it's, it, it, you know, tell them to listen anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you enjoyed the past episode this week. Nelson Swegler, and many of you uh, might have never heard of Nelson, but I, I think you know him now. Uh, we had a great conversation. Uh, Nelson, part of the original family, and I, I use that word, really. It's a family. Uh, it, it was back then with the McMahons. Uh, not a lot of people were involved when it all started. And, you know, I love that story of Nelson uh, talking about Vince and telling when he told them, you know, Vince, uh, we have, you know, they had all these syndicated programs and, you, and they used to buy the time and the stations would, you know, trade out in some ways. They put their own spots in there. And he told them, he told Vince, hey, you know, uh, there's these spots in these shows that we could put commercials in. We could sell them. And Vince telling him, you know, we're, we're a wrestling company. We're not a television company. <laughs> well, that didn't last too long. And my, how things changed. Let's get to our guest this week because. Lord knows he has waited long enough. Let's get to my conversation with Colt Cabana. Ding, ding, ding. Well, folks, I am really excited about our guest uh, here this week on Primetime, not only because of the career he's had in the ring with a number of uh, independent organizations, including the WWE, and we will get to all that. But uh, really, I have to tell you, uh, for other reasons, uh, because I consider him one of the trailblazers in the business, someone who has never waited for opportunity to come to him, but rather relentlessly pursued it instead, all the while continuing to adapt along the way. Welcome, Colt Cabana. Hey, Colt. Hey, Sean. Did you say WWE was an independent? No, no. I said, in, well, I said including, <laughs> but I meant uh, organization with WWE. But, you know, with everything happening in this world, maybe one day that's what they will be considered. I don't know. <laughs> oh god yeah i call 
Fair enough. It's it's funny because I you know I work for Ring of Honor and everyone's right. like they call that the independence, but like uh, I don't know, it's kind of owned by a giant mega corporation. So that's true. So they, I, I, but I you know they operate independently, I guess. So I guess we could uh, call mm. it that, right? I guess. Uh, I appreciate the kind words though, and uh, uh, I was a huge fan growing up of yours. This is so cool. We've met a couple of times, and uh, yeah. it's nice to be on your podcast. Well, I'll tell you, and um, uh, you're you you have a podcast, and you have been around. I mean, you're like I mentioned, Trailblazer. Uh, you were one of the first to do it, and uh, at this point, uh, Colt, I know you've. I think you're over 400 episodes. The art of wrestling, folks. I know that a lot of the people that are probably listening to this podcast certainly tune into yours and probably have for a long time. But it's is that is just amazing. Do you look back now and say, "Wow"? I mean, how many years now you've been at it? Yeah, some would say I'm the Kevin Duckworth of uh, podcast. <laughs> if you're going to call me the Trailblazer, yeah. Um, although he's passed though, so I wouldn't want to yeah. be him. Would not would I? Uh, yeah, it's over. It's uh, is it over eight years? 2010. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. June of 2019 started. Yeah, and um, yeah, I, you know, I kind of like you said, like uh, right, I, the idea of that. I don't. I, I'm not looking for handouts. Uh, and back in I. I was obsessed with podcasting. I listened. I grew up. I don't know. Were, were you a, a talk radio guy? Did you do talk radio? Uh, yeah. Along the way when I got, uh, you know, after I came back here, I did. But I didn't do it early on in my career. But I love radio. I just think it's awesome. Yeah. I, you know, in Chicago, we just had uh, just, I mean, Steve Dahl and Gary and the uh, uh, Gary Meyer and the Loop and um, Kevin Matthews and Jonathan Brandmeyer. And, of course, you know, Howard Stern was still around. And yeah. Unfortunately, man cow was, was around too. Um, but yeah, so I, I grew up uh, listening to talk radio and I always loved uh, sports radio too, even though I'm not really into sports anymore. But we had uh, a station still do called The Score and it was very instrumental on like, uh, you know, I think it was it went like WF, WFAN or whatever in New York, yeah. maybe a couple of them. And then The Score was, was, was pretty much up there in terms of all sports talk radio all day long. And so um, when I, when 2009, I find I found out that there was like you know podcasting had just started kind of coming back into the uh, into the world through iTunes. I mean, uh, audio radio had had been around for a long time, but because iTunes put up a podcasting section, people had started doing it, and the comedy world started embracing it. And so all these comedians started putting up all these long form um, comedy podcasts, and I really got sucked in, and I thought it was amazing. I couldn't wait for the wrestling. I couldn't wait for that to enter the wrestling world where com just like it was like comedians who were in comedy were doing stuff about comedy. And I was waiting for wrestlers who were in wrestling to do stuff with wrestling and no one was doing it. And uh, it just kind of hit me like, oh, I guess I'm the one that's going to have to do this. And so uh, and so I did. And it was, you know, it was rough at, at, in the beginning. If you listen to some of those early ones, mm -hmm. uh, they were a little rough, but you find your you find your niche and you keep with it. And, and slowly but surely uh, it grows. You know, luckily, I didn't even like look at the numbers at the beginning. I think that was the best thing I could have ever done. Like, I didn't even pay attention. I just knew I was doing something fun and I was enjoying doing it. And then later when money started coming into it, you start looking yeah. at those numbers. But that was that was years later. So, Well, what podcasts, as far as wrestling uh, was concerned, were out there at that point? I mean, there, I know there wasn't many, but did you, you know, were you listening to them and saying, man, I think I could do a better job with this? What What else was out there? Well, it was just a lot of uh, fans and analysis. Right. Um, uh, you know, obviously, like Wade Keller and Meltzer have been doing audio for a long time, but it, it wasn't. It was just kind of like critiquing what the shows were, and I guess for some of those guys, like the scoops. 
But like I said, with the comedy, uh, they were kind of like talking about how, I don't know, like the inside of the business and they were breaking down that fourth wall, which is kind of funny, uh, you know, going back to my history. But um, I, I just knew that there was a there's a different way to like to look at like to look at the way that audio was done. Yeah. And um, and it just hadn't been done. And, and then also, you know, I got there was weird things for years. I remember like D'Lo Brown uh, and Dr. Tom, they were doing these these weird things. But it just it wasn't like a it wasn't easily accessible. It wasn't a format. It wasn't free. It wasn't weekly. Like it wasn't appointment listening. And um, I think that was the key was to kind of get it. Th- those kind of four things um, to, to become a part of everybody's routine and easily enough to put on your phone. So when you're traveling or going to work or, or in the car. And so, uh, I think just, you know, around the time I started doing it, 2010, 2009, that's when like that started becoming a possibility with the smartphones and everything. And so not, not that I was the right place at the right time, but you know, maybe I was. Yeah. Well, and, and, and you mentioned that back then it was a lot of you know, analysis and people that basically were just talking about what they were seeing at these matches or these events. And then you had, like you said, Meltzer and, uh, you know, these other guys, but there wasn't anybody really out there. And, and, and if there were, they weren't doing it very effectively from the other perspective, from an actual person who stepped into the ring, who knew the business from the other side. And I think that once people caught onto that, they were just blown away by it because no one had really, been able to see behind that curtain yeah i and and in 2000 um in 2009 i had filmed a documentary that came out in 2011 um and when we filmed it like it was myself daniel bryan and sal renaro and this was before dan uh bryan even went to the wwe um it was called the wrestling road diaries and it's still available and i you could get it as a as a download if you want to watch an mp4 on digitalcult.com but uh you know we had Kind of like uh, there had been WWE, I guess, documentaries, but this was in my head the first kind of real, real, real inside look of uh, the modern independent wrestling world at that time. It was like higher level independent wrestling. So it's not like we were uh, starving, but we weren't, you know, rich or, or making really that much money in any ways. And so um, that's a documentary that I was very proud of. I ended up making mm-hmm. two other ones, but I, I knew and, and Brian and I knew like as we were making that, that this was kind of the future. It was like, People want to see inside, I, you know, and I, that's why, you know, Meltzer and Mike Johnson and, and Wade Keller and those guys and, and those guys are, have been so popular for so long and successful. It's because people do want to see the inside. But I think wrestlers keeping kayfabe and everything, um, you know, we're so protective of it, of it for so long. And, yeah. I, and as a wrestler, I do protect. But I do think there are things like the way we live on the road and that we're not that big of, you know, we're not these. I, I, I think. Uh, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the perception of these of the WWF wrestlers, you know, were hey, we're rich millionaire superstars. But the perception uh, of the independent wrestler, I thought it'd be more relatable if they realized we weren't these rich uh, wrestling superstars. We were just normal people. Yeah, and and that's a great point. And I was I really did want to get into uh, Wrestling Road Diaries as we kind of transition here because. You know, I look at at uh, what you do, Colt, and and uh, you know, like I mentioned at the top of this, of course, for your what you've been able to do in the ring, but I also come from a, a very rich production background. I mean, I started out working for Major League Baseball Productions. I was uh, basically, you know, a production assistant and worked my way up, and then finally got an opportunity to be in front of a camera. So when I see people 
doing what you've done, I really, really admire them because uh, first of all, you know, it's, it's this unbelievable creative outlet and, mm-hmm. and to stick with it. And I'm telling you with the wrestling road diaries, folks, if you really, it, to this day, it is a tremendous slice of seeing what life is really like. Uh, I think maybe people, you know, when they saw that movie, the wrestler, you know, with Mickey Rourke is, was maybe kind of a, a view for them, but this is the the grit of it and and the, the the reality of it all and the road trips you know people don't understand uh, what it takes and and what kind of commitment you have to have because there's so many it's day after day after day there's so many ups and many downs and really that's I love that and and another thing I want to ask you about is you know it was just shot really well and I love that style anyway. But what kind of background did you have shooting this? And really, I can't even imagine the number of hours of uh, video and, and you must have shot. So there's, I mean, there's three movies. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, the, the, the second two were done, were done, were shot and edited by a guy named Jack Adinger. And, uh-huh. um, but the first one was, was so, I don't want to say bootleg, but uh, uh-huh. at, at the time we were wrestling for Ring of Honor. And yeah. so they, we had access to these nice cameras. And so they let us kind of borrow a camera. And uh, one of the guys who was helping editing Ring of Honor at the time, his name was Eric Santa Maria. And he actually had a YouTube show called The Wrestling Roundtable for years. Uh, he was editing it, but we didn't have a cameraman. <laughs> and uh, this guy named John Atkins, who used to do um, ring announcing in England when I, when I went over there and toured in, in 2004 and 2005 for uh, a long period of time, I had met him and he had actually weirdly came over to Chicago, I think just to, uh, you know, quote unquote backpack. But at the time he was just Mm -hmm. sitting in a friend's house doing nothing. And I said to John, I was, it it just so happened to time out so well. I was like, Hey, we're going on this road trip. Would you like to carry the camera and kind of just film everything? And this was his way of almost seeing America because in that first diaries, you know, we went from Chicago to Cleveland to, to, uh, Oh God, um, uh, New York to Philly. I mean, we just traveled all over the place and in return, you know, we gave, you know, we paid him a little bit, but it was, it was done very DIY. So yeah. also like when I'm doing those, when I've been doing all three, like not only am I starring in a moment, but I'm also producing them. So I'm telling him the shots to get and the shots I want to get. Uh, so I'm kind of a jack of all trades in that aspect. And then that first one, you know, there was, I don't know, a couple hundred of hours, a couple hundred yeah. hours. And so Eric Santa Maria sat through the whole thing and, um, and he put together, uh, I think a very memorable documentary. And I, I just like the idea that I'm such a wrestling nerd that I've always liked those wrestling with shadows, you know, beyond the mat. Yeah. And, um, you know, one that I, I think doesn't get enough respect and I recommend to everybody is a, is a documentary called, um, the Brookside Diaries. It was done by the BBC. It's on YouTube. It's about Robbie Brookside, who trains at the uh, Performance Center now. This was done in '93, and he also they just BBC gave him a camera, and just he shot it on the road with all the boys and stuff. And it's such an unbelievable, great slice of life. Mm-hmm. So I think we got a lot, or at least I got a lot of uh, inspiration from from that movie. And um, yeah, the behind the scenes look. I'm such a fan of it. I think it's so cool. And yeah, Eric Santa Maria and Jack Edinger both put a lot of time into it, and I'm always appreciative for it. Yeah, and it really is amazing. And and people, uh, you know, we see people do attempt to do this all the time, um, and 
it really just comes down to storytelling that to me. And, uh, you know, I, I think for a first effort and the way you guys did this really was just incredible. I, I and I would not believe me, I would not pass that out easily. I mean, I have done, uh, half of my career has been, uh, you know, I produce television shows for Fox sports net and, um, and I, really I look at it and I'm like, he must have had some kind of background, uh, <laughs> doing this stuff because to, like I said, it's all about, uh, telling a story yeah. and you can get the coolest video in the world. You can shoot it with the greatest, you know, cameras and have, uh, whatever. But if you can't tell a story, it just doesn't hold up. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I highly recommend that one and, and I haven't seen the other two Colt, but, uh, Really, I, I don't know if you've got any other plans to keep doing that, but uh, you're pretty damn good at it. Well, I, first of all, I can't believe you've seen it, so I appreciate that. I mean, I it's it's amazing that you've seen it, and I appreciate that you've seen it. Um, but yeah, I, I think just wrestling for so long, we become natural storytellers. So that's I, I you know I don't know if it's on the job learning or I didn't. It, okay. This is something that I didn't know that I had in me, but. Um, I, I believe that, you know, I've produced my own matches for so long at this point, And at the point that we shot it too, you know, I've been doing uh, probably 11 years worth of wrestling. So mm -hmm. even more maybe, um, is that we just, um, that's the way my brain thinks of like, how do we tell the story? How does this flow? How do we keep, uh, the fans entertained, uh, throughout the thing? And so it's not like I was trained in uh, TV production or movie production or documentary mm -hmm. production, but I was, I believe trained for years about how to, uh, keep keep the entertainment and, and keep it along and have people um, entertained and that that's intertwined in me and it's kind of funny because um, I, I did a guest spot on a TV show called uh, the Chris Gethard show which which was on the uh, which was on True TV but at this point it was on Fusion and I produced uh, a segment so I it was me um, Chris Gethard Rhino and and uh, X Pac versus uh, a coconut, uh, a pineapple, <laughs> a guy named Vacation Jason, and John yeah. Hamm from yeah. uh, from um, Mad Men. Yeah, and um, so like I put the whole thing together, and I, I basically did this. I, I I matched it up together, all of this, and then at the end of it, they gave me this. Uh, they gave me a producer credit, and a lot of the TV people were blown away by how I was able to put this match together. And, you know, and make sure everyone was involved and had all these stories intertwined in one match. And this you can watch this on YouTube. Uh, it's called The Chris Gethard Show. It's the only wrestling version of The Chris Gethard Show. And um, they were all blown away. But like in, in our world, it was just like putting together another match in another segment. It was absolutely nothing. But it was so cool to see and almost be justified by, uh, quote unquote, Hollywood, this Hollywood world being blown mm -hmm. away by us, the wrestlers, being able to produce a segment in 20 minutes, you know, if we wanted to. Yeah. Well, and, you know, people last me today, you know, what is your job? And I say storyteller. And, you know, I don't say, you know, I work at news now, uh, but journalists are journalists. I'm like, no, I, all I've ever done in my entire career and all the different things I've done was try and tell a good story. And uh, you just mentioned that. I mean, like with uh, wrestlers, that's what they do. They're storytellers. The best, the best ones in the ring are the best storytellers. And uh, that makes a lot of sense that they would be able to, you know, like you said, put a story together like with this. And also, I think uh, if they can act, they make very good actors because, uh, you know, they're so used to, you know, having to, let's say, do a, you know, a three-minute, uh, 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 you know, improvised thing in the ring on live television. 
So, you know, like I know that they've told stories about uh, Dwayne Johnson, you know, when he's on film sets, he, he you know steps out on the set. He knows all of his lines because he's used to being able to do that. So a lot of talents that people aren't recognized uh, for uh, in professional wrestling. Yeah. You know, I, I, I go out and I, uh, I, I'm repped and I, I do a lot of TV and, and whatnot, but, uh, I am an awful auditioner, um, <laughs> you know, but it's like, put me on the set and I'm ready to go. Yeah. But yeah. I, you know, audition, you got to memorize those lines. You got to like, it's, if I was, if I'm just in the action, I could feel it so well, but, uh, sometimes my auditions aren't, aren't the best. <laughs> Well, you can keep working on that because I have a feeling that uh, you, you still have a lot ahead uh, coming your way. Uh, you know, getting back to the podcast, um, at what point, because uh, you know, like, you know, back then there wasn't a whole lot of this going on, but was it born, uh, you know, for you to do something like this out of, uh, I, I, you know, I'm going to not wait for somebody to sell me? Or was it a combination of this is a this is a medium that I can I think I can do really well at and it's going to uh, help me you know sell my product? Yeah, I, I think it was. Um, I mean, there's a lot of factors that went into it. Um, a lot of them was I, I knew I had a sympathetic story. I knew people liked me, um, and and I knew that that just um, I didn't have any way to really get it out on a constant basis. And uh, I, I knew how important that was coming from the from the WWE, and also like so I knew I was going back to the independents, where basically I had learned everything, and mm. uh, I had watched the wrestlers before, and so maybe I'll give like uh, I don't know Snitsky an example. So uh, you know he was on TV every single week, every single week. So uh, when people would know about him, they would know he, there's a commercial for him every single week, and then. He got fired and then he went on the independence and people still remembered him. But then a year later, he's not on TV every week. And so people slowly and slowly kind of forget about these big stars. And they're just kind of hoping that people remembered them from a couple of years ago. Yeah. And I knew that I, this is something I want to continue to do. I want to wrestle forever. So I, I just knew that I had to get my story out there kind of like on a weekly consistent basis the same way that Monday Night Raw is a commercial for these wrestlers to do appearances, I kind of wanted commercials for me so I would stay relevant in the wrestling fans' eyes. I didn't want them to come and buy a T-shirt and a picture from me based off of, you know, maybe what I did in Ring of Honor seven, eight years ago, or even you know the the six squash matches I had at Scotty Goldman in WWE. Yeah. Like I wanted them to enjoy what I was doing at the moment. And so uh, that, along with obviously my obsession with podcasts uh, and the and just the idea that uh, I wanted to share these stories about uh, the, the background of wrestling and, and how we got to where we were, uh, that was kind of the all it kind of all came together um, in that terms. And it was great. Like, I, I just remember the first, you know, after maybe six or eight months like there started to be like a, a big line like at my at my merch booth. Uh, and that that's when I knew people were coming out for me. You know, they were coming to see my like me. And that's when I like I knew I was selling tickets. So um, I knew a promoter would be happy to bring me in. I was worth I was, you know, I was worth the price that I would ask for because I would sell tickets. Uh, the fans would get to see me wrestle and do my craft. And then also I could, you know, merch um, and, and then make extra supplementary income. Um, and then that's kind of how, that's kind of how I, at first I really figured out it was working. And then, you know, I don't know if a lot of people know the insides of podcasting, but, uh, you know, I'd say in the past five years, monetization has started to come in and it's, and it's really changed the game crazily. 
Um, but that wasn't the case for me in the first couple of years. Uh, people weren't selling ads. Uh, and if they were, you know, I, I didn't have access to people that to sell ads for me. So, yeah. I, you know, I would sell high spots. They were always a sponsor. And maybe uh, I would do some trades for some button companies. Like I would promote their buttons and then they would give me, uh, you know, 500 buttons to sell at, at, at shows. And that's kind of how we were bartering, bartering a little bit. But, yeah. um, I, you know, I, I could really tell that it was becoming something when people were coming to the shows and there was starting to be big lines for me at the, at the merch table. Yeah. And that's another part of it, too, is that we're seeing today, you know, a lot of these guys that are capitalizing on that. But you were doing this long before. But, you know, you see people like the Young Bucks and the merchandise that they have in Marty Skrull. And but, um, you know, at, at what point did you realize, hey, you know, I could start selling T-shirts and other merchandise items and it could be another source of income? Well, that's I mean, so I've been wrestling since 99. Also, I have yeah. a, a a marketing degree, which I don't really think helped me. It doesn't matter, but I, I have a marketing uh, bachelor's degree from Western Michigan University, and I graduated in 2002, um, but I've always been about um, about the, the merch, you know, like my first shirt, I think, was in was in 99, and I've been, you know, I put a picture on my Twitter the other day of, uh, there was, someone took a picture of me and M-Dog, Matt Cross, at the gimmick table, and there was me selling VHS copies of my best of, you know, so yeah, yeah. that's been happening a long time for me. I, I remember people like, the illustrious Johnny Stewart. I don't know if that name rings a bell. Um, he was a uh, he was the, like the AWA Ric Flair knockoff on the old ESPN shows. Um, so I was around a lot of these guys who uh, in the Midwest who were. So if I started in '99 and AWA uh, died in '80, I don't know '89, '92 or something like that. A lot of the guys were older and they were clinging around the Midwest scene. So. Some of their tricks were to sell merchandise and make a couple of bucks. And then I saw that happening. And then once I started being able to be like good enough to almost wrestle full time, I was like, I have to just, you know, I have to uh, help make some money. If I want to live as a full time wrestler, yeah. it can't just be the shows. I'm not making enough on the shows, So I started selling merch and that was kind of supplementing everything. So it's been, th this has been a game uh, that I've been doing for, for so long now. Yeah. Did you see a huge spike though? Eventually, when like when the podcast started to roll, and like you said, you started seeing people show up at uh, these events to see you. Uh, did you see that part of it take off too? That people were, I mean, I don't know if you had set up a store at that point or or were able to have it, you know, connect that way. Yeah, well, you know, I was selling merch on MySpace, like MySpace. What you were able to put, a, you were able to put a PayPal link up. So I remember very, and that was two thousand five, two thousand six. So like. I've always thought of the internet as like the ultimate gimmick table in terms of yeah. it's so cool that fans can come to a local show and buy a piece of merch from a fan but or from a wrestler. But I always thought like, you know, I'm not wrestling in Alaska. I'm not wrestling in uh, Sacramento. I, I'm not wrestling in Dallas. And I'm sure that there's fans there that would, would love a T-shirt or something like that. So that's always been on my mind to make sure that everyone has the opportunity to buy a piece of merchandise from me if they would like. Um, but I really, it really blew my mind. Like, yeah, um, as the podcast got popular, people were buying t-shirts and I've always, and I still do, I ship from my own home. Uh, I use, uh, really? yeah, I use stamps.com, use the code Colt. Uh, <laughs> there you go guys, catch that. <laughs> but I, you know, I've always done that. It, it also, it makes me feel like, uh, it makes me feel like I'm working. It makes me feel like, uh, like I've earned it, you know, um, it just, I feel like I'm really doing the work 
when I when I pack it up and I ship it out and everything. Um, but when the diaries came out, uh, the road diaries came out. That was the first like real blowback. There's two things. Um, the uh, I Star Cult shirts. Uh, Punk once wore the, my shirt on commentary, and uh, I got so many orders that the next day. Uh, oh, wow. But the road diaries, you know, the the first week I must have packed and shipped a couple of thousand of them by myself, mm-hmm. and um, I was it was I was blown away by it, and it, I was putting in like twelve, thirteen hour days just packing and shipping and and writing out labels, and it was very hard, and um, but also at the same time it was so rewarding because it was like hey like this is all working. Um, you know, WWE doesn't, it's like, there's not a percentage split, you know, like I paid out the guys who are getting paid. And so now this is just like, I'm seeing the fruits uh, of my labor. Like all mm-hmm. the money coming in is, is going to be mine. I'm earning this. And I love the idea that I'm shipping everything out and I'm putting in the work. Yeah. And, uh, and I want to circle back to that, you know, uh, in our conversation, because you're seeing a lot of the guys today that they are, you know, uh, shaping their own destiny uh, they're not, uh, having to, have a company like WWE, uh, you know, merchandise, take their merchandise, get a big giant percentage, and then you get something out of it. These guys are doing it all themselves. They're one man shop, just like you are. Um, but before we get to that part of it uh, and where I think, where you think the uh, independent uh, world is going, um, everybody loves to hear about your path and, and how you, you even started with this. And I know uh, you grew up in the Chicago area, I believe in Deerfield, um, and you're still there. Uh, how did it uh, grow? How did it all start for you? And and what led you to wrestling? Uh, well, I yeah, I'm not still in Deerfield. I'm in Chicago now. Yeah. Right. Uh, you ever heard? You ever heard of Deerfield? Uh, I know it is uh, north of the city. I have uh, good friends that live in Waukegan. So yeah, I, I've heard of Deerfield before. Uh, and of course, uh, WWE producer Adam Pierce from Waukegan. Uh, okay. Yeah. um yeah i uh yeah and dear so deerfield is kind of like uh it's called the north shore it's like uh, you know middle upper middle class area a lot of people a lot of my friends a lot of people i went to school with went on to be uh doctors and and they're in real estate and lawyers and uh there weren't a lot of fans of professional wrestling growing up uh in my area and i was kind of like really alone in that aspect and so it's kind of why I like what I'm doing now so much that, or at least it's hard to put in perspective because there's such a great community of professional wrestling fans. And it's probably because of the internet too. Um, but I love seeing all these like-minded people all together because when I was a kid, I was the only one there. There were no wrestling fans. And, um, especially when boys my age started liking girls and stuff, uh, you know, they, it was considered nerdy and not cool and they didn't want to be, um, they didn't want to be like put in with re- with professional wrestling, so everyone kind of stopped watching. Uh, and for some reason, I was just always I I, I was always in, you know, I I was all in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so uh, I mean, I guess the long boring story of it is, is uh, obsessed with wrestling. I wanted to be a wrestler. My, my parents said you could do it after college. You you have to get your education first. So I thought to myself, okay. If I'm going to go to college, I'm going to want to play football because Jim Ross always talks about these guys and their football careers. So I went, I wanted to play on the very best possible football team I could because I knew if I went to some scrub division three school, Jim Ross wasn't going to talk about that. Mm-hmm. So I, I went to Western Michigan University, uh, which is a division one, a school is the best one I could get on, on the football team. 
I, I did one year there. I redshirted. I was probably the worst Division One A football player of all time. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't even get to go on the road trips. Uh, I only got to suit up for home games. And after the, I decided like I was ready to quit the first, honestly, like the first or second day. But I said to myself, I made a commitment. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to play. And then side note, uh, Matt Capitelli, who won Tough Enough and passed sadly uh, this year, he was also on the team with me, and um, which was always cool to watch his journey into wrestling. You know, years after I started. Um, so I, I decided I, I just didn't want to do it anymore. I wanted to, I wanted to be a wrestler. It's all I wanted to do. So my parents, I said to my parents, "Listen, uh, I'm done with football. I need to put, I need to wrestle. I need to start wrestling." And they said, "All right, as long as you get your education, you could do it." And I started training in Chicago, and I continued my uh, my college life. And I, I kind of led a double life. Like I would go to school Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and I would wrestle Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and come back on Monday. Uh, and that was my life for three years in college. And I don't know. I just, um, I mean, there's many things in between, but I, I didn't really have a plan. Like I just, I knew I had those three years to go to college. So I just was going to wrestle as much as I could and travel as much as I could. And, you know, come 2002, when I graduated, I was kind of decent at it. Um, I not good enough yet to make a living, but I was close. I was in ring of honor. I was getting flown out to the East coast places. And so I did two years as a teaching assistant to help, um, justify or to help, you know, my, uh, my wrestling habit. And uh, after two years uh, as a teaching assistant, I was able to just make enough money in my head to be a full-time pro wrestler. And that was like $8,500 a year um, <laughs> was, was enough to be a full-time pro wrestler at 23 years old. Yeah, well, that's, that's pretty awesome. I mean, considering uh, you're going to school during that period of time. And I mean, did you start... Uh, you know, during your training and, and just do these little independents around Chicago? I wanted, you know, what was your real first experience in the ring? Yeah, well, it's funny because I was trained by two guys, Ace Steel and Danny Dominion, and they were kind of blackballed in Chicago a little bit. Uh, I think they had some, uh, this guy, the, the guy that trained me, Danny Dominion, he had a, not like an attitude toward me. He was the best. I loved him. But, you know, you could tell he got some heat with the other, other promoters. So at the time for them, like the only work they could get was Minnesota. So they got me booked in Minnesota, but I was living in Kalamazoo, Michigan at, at the time. So I would drive 10 hours to Minnesota and then 10 hours back to get to class. And we do that once a month for about two and a half years. And so uh, then we also started driving to IW Mid-South, which was right outside Louisville, Kentucky. And that was um, five hours from Chicago, but then two, I was two and a half hours from Chicago. So it was another, it was, you know, we'd meet in the middle kind of, so it was about, six and a half hours and we would do that on, on, uh, every, you know, basically every Saturday for two and a half years. Uh, and then they wouldn't get us a hotel. So we would make that drive back every night. You know, the, the show would finish at, at midnight. We'd get back about 6am. Um, and then I, I'd work in Milwaukee, you know, I was, I was living in Michigan, but there wasn't a lot of work in Michigan. So I was just doing a lot of traveling and, and luckily there was a whole group of us, you know, my, my trainer, Danny Dominion, a steel punk, uh, a wrestler named Chuck Smooth, Dave Prazak. Uh, there was kind of a whole group, which was very good. And I recommend it to any wrestler who's starting out. It's kind of, I know I, I don't want to say find your friends, but uh, find that group of wrestlers who want to travel to every show. And it, it makes for just, a, it makes it less miserable, if not miserable, you know, not miserable at all, because that's where the camaraderie is. And that's where you, you share ideas and you grow as people and you learn about different cultures and different people, like in those in those road trips, they're very formative. 
And so for me, like there's no complaints about driving all that time. It was very formative for me to grow as a person uh, and as a wrestler and a performer and everything else. Yeah. And you hear that uh, a lot from, uh, you know, old school guys that that was their education. That was their university was riding in these cars with, with people that uh, were living in it and had lived it. And that's where they really learned the business. And, uh, you know, I, I would think that, you know, part of that's missing today because you can't, you can't, uh, you know, have that in a classroom. And, uh, you know, I can't imagine how valuable that was to you. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And, and it wasn't just the road trips. It was just, um, you know, it was everything. And I do say that my education, like, you know, luckily I'm very successful with all the stuff that I do. And a lot of people, like I said before, they kind of pointed out, oh, it's the college education. But, you know, yeah. I, I think it was from these, these trips and being at these shows and, and being on the shows with veterans and other people. And uh, yeah, I would agree that it's missing to a point, but there are, you know, in every state and in every circle, there are these group of guys who are just traveling their butts off and just trying to do it. So um, as much as we want to say like, oh, it wasn't like it was in the past, there there are these guys and girls that are, uh, that are, that are doing it the right way. And I always commend them and I think it's great. You know, and, and you mentioned uh, CM Punk and um, they say that uh, in your bio that, that he was one of the people who trained you. No, uh, is, but were you, was he like a buddy you hooked up with or how did that whole relationship start? Was it through uh, starting to learn how to, uh, you know, train first or what, what happened with that? Yeah, we got trained together. Like Danny yeah. and Ace so he came in when you did, or was he ahead of you? No, no. I mean, he might've, he came in like six months before me, uh, but then got hurt. And so then when I started, then I trained and when I was like three, two months in, I came back. Uh, then we were like kind of on the same page a little bit, but you know his okay. his story is very uh, documented. Where he was a he was like a a famous backyard wrestler for years. Yeah, so yeah. like he was wrestling in front of like nine hundred people for the LWF when he was fifteen and sixteen years old and seventeen years old. So, um, <laughs> but then he properly got trained at the place that I did, and uh, like I said, he got hurt. And then when I was able to kind of like when I kind of understood how to do stuff, because remember I came from a a sports background. I was able to pick up on this stuff and I was obsessed with wrestling as a kid. So I always found it funny that like people who come into wrestling school and like, don't know how to do a, a sunset flip. You know, it's just like, like, I know your trainer's going to teach you, but like I watched Pedro Morales do that every Saturday morning. Like what, in what world do you not right. know? What you weren't doing that off the couch. Yeah. <laughs> so right. Like, right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, yeah. So when punk and I started wrestling together, we were, um, you know, we were trying to get booked everywhere and we, we, we kind of had a match we would do or, and then eventually when we kind of got infamous for uh, on the indie circuit for the Colt Cabana CM Punk kind of feud, um, mm -hmm. then we, we would be, we would start tag teaming a little bit. And so, um, yeah, we were very, I mean, we were obviously in this, we were in the same circle and we were very close for, for years, obviously. Uh, that's not the case anymore, nor would I really like to dive into it, nor do I think you want to, but, uh, yeah. For years, yeah, uh, you know, we traveled together, we trained together, we wrestled together, we uh, we did everything together. And so, uh, when did it get real for you, as far as you know, with Ring, and o Ring of Honor? Like you said, they were bringing you in and and actually then flying you for dates. But when did it get real? Like, okay, this is what I'm doing for a living now. Well, it was when I when I when I stopped doing the teaching assistant job. So after the second year, I, I was doing. Um, I was a teaching assistant with kids with special needs, and I was a one-on-one -on -one for a kid with Down syndrome and a kid with autism and a couple of the other kids in the class. Um, 
but it re- it got real when I was like, this is what I'm doing full time for a living. And so I knew like I had to make a living at it. And uh, Ring of Honor was a big piece of that. But also when that happened, I moved over to England for three months to wrestle full time on the camps. Uh, I don't know if you've heard mm-hmm. about these or, you know, about no, them. I heard a lot about them uh, with uh, uh, Marty and uh, Nick Aldis talk about yeah. them that uh, people don't realize that it is a, it's a different independent world over there, but it's a great place, a great training ground because, well, I'll let you explain what these camps are, but uh, a great place to learn the business. Yeah. You wrestle every single night. There's yeah. work, there's work every night. There's these place called Butlins and they, it's like uh I, it's like a low rent Disneyland, you know, so, uh, it's an entertainment world, but it's all within the same place. And so like people, I mean, it all comes back, from, it all goes back to the war, uh, where people wanted to go on vacation, but they weren't allowed to leave the, the Island of uh, the United Kingdom. So they started making these vacation lands inland and you would go to the Butlins camp. So Butlins had three different locations that had the wrestling and we would travel from um, from Bogner Regis to Skegness, uh, you know, um, and there's one other place I can't remember right now. But we would kind of do these loops, these territory loops, just like back in the day. You'd wrestle every night. You got there. You put up the ring with all the wrestlers. Joe Legend told everyone he didn't have to put up the ring. So he was the only one that didn't put up the ring. Mm-hmm. So he he sat back. He sat by while everyone else put up the ring. Um and uh, you just wrestled every night and you, you did 20 minute matches and then you'd go back and you do the main event like Battle Royal or like you would do a, a 20 minute match and then a tag match at the end for 20 minutes. So uh, it's much like stand up comedy where like you just needed the stage time. And yeah. in, in England, you got the stage. time. the cool thing for me was I was in these I was at this point where like I was pretty good. So, you know, I was six years into wrestling, so I was pretty good. So this was just like it was a, a, almost like a cleanup or a polishing and it really, really, really helped me and my confidence and everything. And so, um, but that was the start. Like I needed to have, I had some money saved up because I was living with my parents before, um, you know, while I was teaching and, uh, and I was making like kind of okay money wrestling. And so when I came back from England, I had a, a nice chunk of change and I was able to like, say like, all right, like I'm going to live or die by pro wrestling. Yeah, and and you mentioned these camps because I uh, I was really fascinated by that conversation when I talked to to Marty, and uh, you know him saying that they were uh, it was a wonderful place to develop, uh, no matter what you know what level you were at because you know you go to these things and you might spend a couple of days or whatever. And so you you could go out uh, out in the ring and say you know I'm going to try this gimmick and you know might get a feather boa one night and go out there and just try stuff and you could be fearless because the next day or so you're in another camp and you could come back to that same camp later and nobody would remember who you were. And it was just a, a great training ground. So, uh, yeah, that's why I didn't know about the part of how they came about. I think that's interesting too, but, uh, were you, as far as, uh, that goes, did you, were you able to experiment? Yeah, it, it was a, it was, I was going to say it was a different because people would go there for a week and then or yeah. six days. So it was a different, it was always a different audience. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the, I think the key to that is there was zero pressure. They're really the, the Butlins place. They were buying a show, you know, as long as we didn't look like idiots, you could do whatever you wanted. Um, yeah. yeah, I would, uh, <laughs> I would, uh, sometimes I would be the, 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 I would say I was from England and I would come out with the British flag and I would try to talk in a British accent the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then some, sometimes I would, uh, I would be a bad guy and I would just like wear like real high waisted trunks. So I did a, 
character on uh, MTV's Wrestling Society X called Matt Classic. And uh, I think this is where that came from. Is uh, like I want it to be, and you'll appreciate this. I want it to be Iron Mike Sharp a couple of times. Yeah, sure. So I just wrestled as Iron Mike. Yeah, with Mike. the high shorts, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I would just make all these loud noises, and I would just, uh, you know, I, I found something, I put it on my wrist, and I just was, uh, you know, you're just experimenting. I thought it was yeah. fun to do also. Well, great for your development, too. And really, you know, it's a, it's a playground. I mean, that must have been, that's why you do it. I mean, like they say, your, your kids who never have to grow up, and you get to play, you get to dress up and have a ball. I mean, that's. But that, that sounds like it must have really been a blast because, like you said, you a week later you go back, you got a whole different crowd to play to. Yeah, and yeah, I think us as wrestlers, we we find ourselves when we are when when it is a playground, when we are just able to yeah. be free. And I think that's where the best stuff comes from. And so, like you do hear a lot of like micromanagement is, is kind of hindering, you know, like big time wrestling a little bit. Um, at the same time, some of the, you know, when you're playing around, sometimes it's just God awful. So I'm sure that's why they had to like micromanage a bunch of stuff. Um, yeah. but you don't want to lose that ability to, to find, you know, find the funny as, uh, they would say, I guess in comedy. Find yeah. It, so, in so really the, go ahead. I'm sorry. Sorry. Find the funny in comedy, but in wrestling, it's find, you know, what, find your bit, find whatever is going to get you there. Yeah. And it's great that you had that, uh, that stage to do it. Um, and when you look back down, I mean, uh, Ring of Honor was, you know, that, those early years, I think from what, 02 to 07. Um, do you really look back at that time fondly as because you did a lot uh, and, and, and were and wrestled with some really great talents? Um, you know, while I was there, I was yeah. just like, I was just like, man, all these wrestlers are so good. I don't understand why WWE doesn't want anybody. I don't understand why we're all outcasts. It makes no sense. Everybody is so good. It's so ridiculous. And the roster was, it was like punk myself, yeah. uh, Brian, Brian Danielson. Yeah. <laughs> Better <That's> known as, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Samoa Joe. Uh, there was just a hand, just Cla uh, Claudio who is Cesaro, man. When I was like, I want to be in WWE, but like, and I would look, and I knew they didn't have interest in in Cesaro. I was just like, "What is going on? Like, he is the ultimate human being. He's like six four. He's jacked. He speaks five languages." I was just like, "Well, I know I'm not going to make it because they have no interest in this guy." Um, so, but I knew it was something special. The promoter or the booker, Gabe Sapolsky, he was like our age, so he wasn't this like uh, boss type of person who would look down and like bark orders. Uh, he, we were all on the same, um, uh, on the same level, which I thought was so important to the early, uh, popularity and success of those, of the ring of honor days was it was just, everybody was friends from the wrestlers to the, to even the, the booker that we would share ideas and we'd spit ideas. Uh, and, and just, it was almost this just open, um, I don't want to say playground, but just as, for for creative minds, we were just it was all open, and and if I had a d idea for Brian, I would say it. If Brian had something for me or for Joe or whatever, we would all it was all for Nigel. Like everyone was trying to make everything better, and uh, it was it was a little bit of reminiscent of what I heard ECW was like, um, and, and so I knew that you know, and you know, it was you know, Gabe was uh, you know was working under Paul Heyman all those years, so. Um, I always, I loved ECW as a teenager. I always wanted to be a part of it. I was sad when they went down, 
So to be part of Ring of Honor, uh, while I was in it, I knew it was special. And I knew all the wrestlers were special, too. Did you really have that feeling, though, that you were all outcasts? I mean, is that was that the feeling? Is that what drove you guys, too? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, uh, Roderick Strong is another one. You have to look at, like, the landscape of wrestling has changed so much. Mm-hmm. In 2006, like, they were only signing, like, there was a memo that was sent out. And I remember, you know, I think... Johnny Ace or someone said, like, you had to be six foot two thirty jacked. They weren't even going to look at you. Um, So at that time, you know, Mark Jindrak and Sean O'Hare and like Chuck Palumbo. And uh, that's what wrestlers looked like that they wanted to sign and put in the system. And it was not Tyler or uh, Seth Rollins or Daniel Bryan or Roderick Strong uh, or Bobby Fish. It was not the people that looked like that. And, you know, a lot of, you know, you know, um, you know, punk and, and dragon, like they all get credit, you know, uh, for kind of break, helping start to break that mold up in WWE. Um, but just, you know, 10 years, 15 years ago, uh, it was a whole different game. Yeah. But what, what changed? Because we did see these guys find, uh, great success. Um, was it eventually they realized, okay, the, just because you're six, two and look great, is not which is something they should have realized years and years before that, but it was just an era that they were, that that was happening. And and what changed? I think the independence, like the independence changed it. The idea, uh, I think like the stronger that Twitter got, Mm -hmm. uh, and and the internet and people's voices being able to be heard. Um, you know, just before I think WWE thought they heard the fans or the real hardcore loving wrestling fans, but um, you know, the stronger that, you know, with ring of honor drawing X amount of people and all these indies and, and all this buzz, it's like, you can't deny that, that, that on such a small level, this is able to grow. And it's like, imagine if you had the machine behind it, what it could be. So with nothing behind it, you know, these, like I became a name in wrestling with nothing behind me. Like, imagine mm-hmm. if I had a million dollar machine behind me. Yeah, And, and so I think they somebody realized that like oh like all we have to do like they have obviously the talents and people and organically people are liking them all we got to do is put a little uh, WWE dust on them I guess yeah so when the opportunity came up uh, for you to go there in in 07, uh how did that come about um well you know I had. I, I'm not that good of a networker or whatever. Like I, well, I'll you didn't send that, them tapes every week uh, like a lot of the guys would do. Or I'm not a, I'm not an ass kisser. I'll say that. And <laughs> one of my downfalls, you know. Like, but, but also I've been true to myself, so I have a lot of pride in who I am and 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 where, why I get places. So um, I, I was like, I was doing enhancement matches. I was getting booked. Um, I had done a, a seminar for Dr. Tom, and I asked Dr. Tom if I could be a guy who uh who could you know come and do local work and he said yes and then remember i was doing this full time so uh once i got the yes to be a guy who does local work at the time they were paying two uh 300 a day and that was a monday and tuesday worth of work so i would work friday saturday sunday and then i'd work monday and tuesday i was working you know sometimes i'd be working five days a week um and i would drive anywhere from you know if they were within 10 hours of me I could justify $500, you know, take away $100. I would sleep on Trevor Murdoch's, you know, uh, room, you know, on his floor or, mm-hmm. or Paul London's floor. So I wouldn't pay a hotel. Uh, you know, I could justify doing these trips. 
And I just started doing a lot of work for them. And I started making a name for myself on the independence. And I know, uh, and I, and I'd wrestled all the guys that were there. So I know at one point, like Matt Hardy, Brian Kendrick, Ken Anderson, punk, uh, Regal, all of these guys were saying to John Laurinaitis, like, yeah, he's pretty good. You should use him. Uh, Devar and then Davari was like the main guy who got me in. And so finally, um, WrestleMania, something was in Detroit ring of honor, ran Detroit, um, Johnny Ace, uh, Davari said he got Johnny Ace to look at me. And so, at you know, at WrestleMania, they set up the rings so the guys can practice. Yeah. So he had set up a match for me and him to do in front of just Johnny Ace. Uh, and then Johnny Ace just never showed up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just we just kind of stuck around. And then eventually uh, I stuck around the hotel. I saw Johnny Ace later. And then I, I think he felt bad. So he offered me a job. <laughs> um, well, that's you. Yeah. I mean, he had seen my work and he knew I was of honor and he knew, but, um, I think just, it all kind of came to a point. And then I remember Shane Helms, one of the, my, one of my favorite quotes is Shane Helms was at the bar and he was like, Hey, they signed Colt Cabana. And then the undertaker went, what the hell's a Colt Cabana? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And he would, he still says that to this day. So, (laughs) um, so yeah, you know, and and also I, I had done, not that I'd done everything in ring of honor, but I, w- I was at a point where I was watching all my friends getting signed, moving on. Um, I had done these really great feuds with Nigel McGuinness and Homicide and Jimmy Jacobs and Ring of Honor. And I had been there for five years. And as a, as, a his- as a fan of the history of wrestling, like I know you kind of move on. You know, it's, you're not meant to stick, stay in the same territory forever. So um, I was ready for a fresh start. And I was ready to move on. I signed the papers and uh, I moved to Louisville. You know, and as we've seen, many, many times with, uh, with talent and, and it's, it's kind of, it's the unexplained where, you know, you can have a great look, you can, uh, be really skilled in the ring. You could may even cut a great promo, but for some reason it doesn't happen. And, uh, I, I don't know if you have a theory about it or, uh, is it just maybe they don't push you right or what, but we've seen that happen. And uh, like you said before, you knew guys that were in Ring of Honor that you looked at and you're like, this guy has got everything. And yet they'll go up to the WWE and, uh, and nothing. You know, they're just fizzle. And uh, did you feel that way about yourself with the WWE? And really, why does that happen? Because I, you must have felt you were ready. So um, when I went to OVW, like, you know, you it's just a local crowd. And right. I... And I got over because I, that's something I knew how to do. Uh, I got over with that crowd organically. I knew how to get over and I got over. I became one of the top baby faces in the quote unquote territory. And at one point, Mark Carano was down there and he said, I had it. Um, so to me, that meant like, great. Like, yeah. how do you, I'll be moving up anytime soon here. Um, but also, but, 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 um, you know, Vince McMahon or Kevin Dunn, they never came down there. So it's not like, they were ever going to pluck me out. And also the same thing happened in FCW when Vince McMahon did come down. Um, the, the powers that were to be, um, they, they pushed the guys that they thought Vince would want, which is kind of funny because you hear the guys that are coming up now. Uh, it's a lot of guys that Vince would look at and be like, yes, those are the guys that I want up as opposed to the guys, uh, who are like mad over in NXT right now. Um, Mm -hmm. and so the same thing happened to me at FCW in Florida was they, we're like, we're, hey, we're going to showcase these guys. And so like 10 of those guys got to, and girls got to 
do a um, got to do a promo in front of Vince McMahon, and I wasn't able to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've always said that, like, I never thought I would be in the WWE just because I never had that look. I didn't look like John Cena. I didn't look like Dave Batista. I wasn't what they wanted. But I do know I have this, like, I don't know if it's like charm or charisma that uh, that I'm able to just like kind of get over uh, with a with a regular wrestling fan if you give me some time. So I'm, I like there was that balance of when I when I got called up, it was because uh, Dusty and some of the other guys just said, there's no point in you being down here. So we just kind of have to call you up. And mm-hmm. I knew it was this point of like I. I'm not going to go and blow him away right away because I know if Vince McMahon and, and Kevin Dunn just look at me, they're not going to be like, yep, he's the next guy. Obviously I don't have that look, but I do know if I put in enough time, like you will see the creativity and you'll see how my mind works and you will get to know me and then you'll like me and then you'll find something for me and then I'll weirdly get it over and then I'll start to climb up and move up the ladder. And obviously, you know, as Goldman, I started the very bottom of the ladder, um, mm-hmm. But I had the WWE.com show that I was writing and, and kind of producing myself. Uh, and that was slowly getting a small, like, little fun audience. It was called What's Crackin' yeah. uh, with Scotty Goldman. Um, but I think what happened is I wrestled. They needed someone to wrestle Umaga. Um, I was just on the screen. You know, I was presented as uh, a lower tier guy, even though I was under contract for two years there. And, um, you know, I was just kind of told, like, I was looked at, so, you know, Kevin Dunn saw me, you know, allegedly, and was just like, why is this guy on my screen? And that's all it takes up there. And the next day I was gone. Well, you know, and, and it is, it's, it seems like in some ways they, they, and, and there are guys that they really want to get over and they just don't execute it. And, you know, I, I just knowing I was going to be doing this interview, I looked at a couple of the what's Krakens and, you know, and I don't know if you would have been interested in doing it, but I think you would have been great hosting shows for them and, and doing that because there's, I don't know at the time how much there was, we've seen what it's growing into, but that is such a big part of how, and like, I think if you would have been given more opportunity there, that it would have led you to more time in the ring. And I, you know, and I don't know how it worked back then, but like you said, to me, that's half the battle. I mean, you've got to be able to sell. You've got to be able to have people, you know, want to watch you. And, uh, you know, like watching that stuff and saying, man, you know, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand why that didn't, that didn't happen more, especially uh, with that, that format. Yeah, and I appreciate that. So when we were in FCW, there was a time where Dusty Rhodes was doing commentary because um, nobody was else, nobody was there to do commentary. And I could tell he didn't want to do commentary. And so I wasn't like, I was Scotty Goldman at the time. So like, I wasn't really being pushed down in FCW because, uh, I'd already been called up. So they were trying to push the guys that weren't being called up so they could help develop them. And so I said, Hey, can I do commentary? And he was relieved. Um, so so then me and Byron Saxton started doing commentary and I think we did good. Like, because I've known wrestling, I've been watching wrestling. I've been in wrestling for over 10 years at that point. Um, and obviously now I'm the commentator for ring of honor, but, uh, at that point I was doing really good. And then they started putting me on the TV show. I was doing commentary down there. I remember Meltzer being like blown away that I was like at my commentary at the time. And then also like one of the producers who had been there a long time, they, they really liked me. This is the guy, I think he produced like the stone cold, um, he was friends with, with Shane and he produced the stone cold vignettes. I think his, I think his name was Mark, but I'm not, I can't remember really well. Um, 
But it seemed like they were like almost quasi grooming me for commentary also on top of, like you said, uh, uh, being um, a presenter. And so what, but what happened at that time and what's changed now, which I appreciate is that those lines of communications weren't there. Nobody was telling Kevin Dunn, Hey, this guy got over really easily in OVW. Hey, this guy does commentary and we don't have many and uh, he'd be great at commentary. And they didn't, Dr. Tom and Steve Kern didn't say, Hey, Colt's a really good person to have. He's a great attitude. He loves wrestling. He's here all the time. He helps the younger guys. Uh, that wasn't being uh, relayed. It was just Kevin Dunn looking at me and going, uh, allegedly going, uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't see anything in this. Why is he here? And then it being gone. So yeah, uh, sure. luckily I think with Hunter triple H, uh, if you didn't know, no, I'm just, <laughs> um, <laughs> that there's a better line of communication from developmental to, uh, WWE. And I, and I believe from the friends I talked to, it's not that great. But it is way better than it was for for us in FCW and OVW, and I know in OVW and FCW it was way better for us than it was for the guys uh, like Pete Gas uh, in Memphis, you know. Yeah, well, and and there is a lot more to uh, you know a lot more of a platform than there used to be. I mean, with the network now, and and uh, you know, with the with the you know the internet is it's just gigantic. So maybe if it were a different time, they were more ahead then. Right. They may have been able to take more advantage of that, but you know, people like you and what Zach Ryder was doing too were just, you know, just uh, innovative wise to me. I would have said these guys, we've got to we've got to find something for them because they're they're changing the business. They they for some reason they know how to connect with these people, which you know I think in a lot of ways that you know that direct contact is not uh, they don't haven't found like the formula that really works. I mean, they certainly have this vast social media, you know, platform and everything that goes with it. But you see people like what you do and Zach does, and then what, uh, you know, these guys with Cody and, you know, what they're doing, they, they saw early on and, and maybe within the last few years for them, but you saw this, that, that direct connection, like a lot of these people that you are connected with on social media think that they are, you know, like you're the, you're a friend of theirs. That's how that relationship, and that's huge as far as everything goes with the business. Not only do they want to come see you in the ring, anything you do outside of the ring, they want to be a part of. Yeah, I don't. Um, well, first of all, the Zach Ryder stuff. I told Zach as as you know, Triple H was pedigreeing him in the middle of the ring. I was like, I was there for that, and I was like, dude, I can't wait to read your book because, like, you know, in 25 years, because I. He, that was so crazy how over and how they didn't want him to be over like unbelievable but that's they a whole had to they had to put him out there <laughs> that's a whole different podcast story yeah, yeah. um but yeah you know that was a vision of mine when i started the podcast was was that idea of like grabbing all these wrestling fans and becoming my friends and becoming relatable and wanting them to root for you know like i was the alt to me in my head i was the ultimate underdog uh, I had a lot of sympathy because I think a lot of people knew I should have been successful in WWE. And a lot of people were scratched, just like you were saying, were scratching their heads going like, this doesn't make any sense. And so I made that part of my story. Um, and yeah, like, you know, uh, and a lot of those early, you know, Rolling Stone and ESPN articles, like, uh, you know, the Young Bucks, they, they give me a lot of credit. And I would be there. Like, it was, I, there was a point where, they were watching me make all these sales and they were watching me like selling all these t-shirts and they were blown away. And they like, I don't say that I say this in like such a proud, almost father way. Like what they're doing was like, was my vision. Mm -hmm. 
but I didn't know what my vision maybe was. And they had a bigger vision and they saw it and they like ran with it and they killed it. And they, they're, they blew me away by a million times. And I think it's so cool and I'm so proud of them. And I think it's amazing. And I think it's, it's exactly, it's kind of like, it was what I was trying to do. I just didn't know, maybe I just didn't know exactly how, like I did it on some kind of level, but they, they're now they're, they've multiplied that by a million and it's exactly what needed to be done. And I'm glad it's happening. And I'm glad finally like someone's doing it. And it was the, you know, like it was the idea of like, Hey, like WWE rules everyone because they're on USA. And, and then like, I would always say to myself, like the internet is connected to way more people than the USA channel is, Yeah, is just about finding how to get everyone to it uh, at, at the same place. And, they, and they've done it. They've killed it. And they've surrounded themselves by, by an unbelievable group of, of wrestlers with Cody and Kenny and Marty. And uh, the formula is right. And they're riding the wave. You know, we, we I talk about this with the Young Bucks all the time. They're like, oh, we know this is going to – it's going to end sometime. So we're just riding it and we're living it out. And uh, it's, it's you know, who, I, we thought it was going to end two years ago. But we're still here and here it is. And it's getting yeah. bigger. It, it is amazing. And, uh, you know, you've remained uh, out there. I mean, you're not 40 yet. And you see what, like, PCO is 50. So I don't know how much longer you're going to keep doing this in the ring. But uh, I can't wait to see what's ahead uh, for you. And and also you just mentioned, because I was uh, I was at StarCast and then uh, also got an opportunity to do something with All In. And just, you know, I went there really not knowing uh what that event was going to be like. I knew that they had sold thousands of tickets in a half an hour. And, but I didn't really know, okay, so, so, so can they execute this? And I'll tell you that, that from the whole event with Starcast uh, and, and what uh, Conrad Thompson did with, with Cody and the, and the rest of those guys getting just the, the show that surrounded the show was just amazing. And I think that is kind of a new model for these, uh, you know, fan fest or whatever you want to call them, because, I was just blown away by the connection that these guys had to the fans there. And, you know, uh, like they'd be walking through the hallways at this hotel where they had, you know, StarCast. And they're stopping and they're just having conversations. And, you know, of course, we, we see this at other events, but it was, it was a whole different vibe. And I, you know, like where they had the uh, autograph tables and they had lines out the door. Well, finally, they had to go in there and say, guys, you got to get the lines moving because we need the table for the next people that are supposed to be there. But they were talking to these people. You know, it wasn't just signing a picture here, signing a picture. Thanks. Hey, how are you? I had a picture. You know, they were talking to them. These guys all knew. And from your viewpoint, what do you see happening uh, with all this right now? Well, first of all, like our and I'm like, now I'm like a trans millennial because I'm not really a millennial, but I'll, yeah, I'll put myself, right. I'll put myself in that. Like we're learning from the ones above us. So, uh, yeah, like, you know, when all of us weren't anybody in wrestling, we would see what the people on top were doing and weren't doing and what, like what we didn't like. So like the idea that we would hear like fans being like, yeah, they barely signed an autograph. They barely, yeah. they barely looked at us. They barely took the time to know us, uh, for security years. everywhere, you know, yeah, for years we would hear these complaints, and I think all of us were like, "Well, if it ever comes for us, we're gonna know that this is not what the fans want." So that's something I think, uh, like we learn from the past, and the, and the ones you know after us will learn from our mistakes too, uh, to only make it better. I think, and also you know I've done those conventions, I've done a lot of them, and I've mm -hmm. uh, what I noticed for all in, and and I guess this group uh, was this was 
sent like we like we the younger and I say younger I, I know I'm 38 but uh, I like to consider myself in that like I think like the way uh, the, you know the guys come the guys that are doing it right now mm-hmm. but like we were the stars like the independent wrestler was the star and for so long I've done these things where you know the warlord and the barbarian and uh, Haku and uh, tugboat like you know those were the guys everyone was there for. And the independent wrestler were just, we were on the fringe. Like, you know, we were lucky to make a couple of bucks, you know, from people who didn't want their LJN dolls signed or whatever. Uh, shout out to Zack Ryder. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that that was the big difference, I think, was this was the first time I had ever been to a convention like this where straight up we were the stars, the ones that weren't on television, were the stars of the show. And, like, some of the bigger guys that were there, like, weren't really, like, flocked to. And they got to feel how we felt for so long, which was yeah. I, I don't I don't wish that upon anyone, but it was it was it was kind of cool and kind of nice to see. No, it was it was really awesome, and I have to tell you that um, you know they have had a lot of these shows, and, and folks who who didn't get the great opportunity to go there and be a part of it, where there was something there for everybody. And what I also loved about it, it was so accessible to everybody. Um, you know, I did a I did a a, a show with with Jim Johnston. Uh, on the music of the WWF, WWE. And uh, it was just so cool that there were so many people that were just fascinated by, you know, how that music was made. And and Jim Johnston was, this, you know, he's a musical genius thinking of all the different music he's created. He he was just blown away. He thought, oh, well, make God, five people going to show up, you know? And it was packed. And, they, and then there was a line out the door to uh, have them sign autographs and and it was just whatever you wanted to, to, to see you you and you got to be right there up close and personal with these guys ask questions they would you know engage you uh, you know they had the, the WCW panel the they you know they just had everything and the, another thing too uh, Colt was you know they had a green room there you know where people would just kind of gather uh, that were the talent and and there was a lot of old school guys there, you know, they, Scott Steiner showed up there and, uh, you know, the list went on and on uh, and and all these young guys and the respect that was shown just totally impressed me because these guys really do have a respect for the business. And it's not like, hey, we're changing it and we're doing it our way and screw what they used to do. No, they they are like taking the best of that, uh, of the old school and having, you know, that respect and it was just cool to see the way that, you know, they go up to these guys, shake their hands and, you know, and chew their ear about the business. And I know that a lot of the guys that went there were, you know, I had a really long conversation with Sergeant Slaughter about it. And he said, you know, it's it's just great to see. It's given, you know, it gave me new hope. Like just thinking, you know, this business, these guys are going to change it and they're doing it, uh, you know, totally in charge of their own destiny. And it was just great to see. And, but it's, you know, don't forget, it's the ones that, uh, the ones that are nice, you know, like, uh, there's a lot of veterans who weren't, who were asked not to be there. Um, yeah. and, you know, so like the great, the, the fun ones that, you know, cause a lot of us, when we start out, we're on shows with these guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I was on shows with Scott Steiner when I was young and Sergeant Slaughter and, uh, you know, rest in peace, like George Animal Steel and all these guys. And yeah. these, these guys were great. And so, yeah. you know, we want them around and, and we love, you know, we're all big fans we all grew up loving wrestling so we love hearing the story so the ones that are nice and sweethearts to us i think we we definitely embrace and i will share my story uh i shared a a table with sergeant slaughter 
And uh, I knew I was sharing a table with him, and I was very nervous. But I brought, I collect, uh, <laughs> I collect um, vinyls, vinyl records from uh, from like wrestling music. Mm-hmm. So I had a vinyl record of Sergeant Slaughter and the Camouflage Band, and I brought it for him to sign. I was like, uh, "Sorry, can you sign this?" And uh, we, had, and he was like, "Oh, of course." And we had this fun conversation, and uh, and it was great. He was great. Yeah, he is a he's a he's a really great guy, and um, I hadn't really seen him in a while. Where you know we finally got him on the podcast, but uh, yeah, he he uh, you know he was very close friends with Lord Alfred Hayes, who was a good friend of mine back when I was with the WWF and we just traded stories on about Alfred and really, and, and he really, uh, loved seeing what, what's going on today. And he said he went there, you know, same way I did not really knowing what to expect, but, uh, leaving feeling very good about what's ahead uh, in the future for the business. And, and so what do you see now with what's we see happening with the big announcement with, with Cody and the young bucks and, uh, and, and, and what goes on now with the independent, uh, industry. It's I mean, wild. It's, Everyone's kind of getting signed up. There's a, uh, you know, I, I was there like in 2009 when some people wanted to start doing these contracts and I was very against it. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I said like, you can't sign somebody for like less than what a janitor makes. Like, what do you, how are you, <laughs> why are you signing these people up for a hundred dollar deals, you know, or whatever it is. Um, but now it seems like it's, uh, becoming real money, you know, uh, for the, for all of these people. So I think it's good for the wrestlers. Um, I, what I don't like is that with these exclusive deals, uh, some of these wrestlers that are getting exclusive deals need, need to wrestle all the time. Um, and I've seen that happen with ring of honor too. Uh, some of these wrestlers, I mean, some don't, but you know, the Briscoe brothers have been an it for so long, you know, they, they know exactly what they're doing, but some of these guys are two, three, four years in, and, and they need to be wrestling three times a week, four times mm-hmm. a week. And I think that is a little bit of, uh, of w- where it might, the wrestling might, you know, start decreasing, not now, but, you know, 10 years from now, because um, th- they're not getting as many matches or as many reps. So uh, I think that's, that's going to be the only downfall is, is the wrestlers not wrestling enough. Um, but obviously financially and creatively, uh, you know, the more pull they have, uh, I think the better it's going to be, you know, as performers, we don't want non-performers telling us what to do. You know, it's just, uh, I, I know with the, with the writers and I respect the writers. Like, I, I think it's great what they do. And, and, and I think it's great, but sometimes it's just like, we're artists. And, uh, I, I think we want to put the art the, out the best way that we can. So it's, sometimes it's hard when people are trying to jump into our world um but yeah with i mean with all with ring of honor and, and all elite and mlw and all of these people coming together like you know kind of bidding out people uh it's pretty great for i think every for everybody yeah and and it's also great to see because uh you know these guys are they're originals they have stuck to what they want to do and i think you know that's was very true back in the 80s which you grew up in a great time when um, you know, we, these very vivid characters, but, but they were allowed to develop that character, it, it, you know, and the ones that were good at it were the most successful, you know, people like Randy Savage and, you know, the list goes on and on with, with, uh, these superstars of the day. And, you know, that we, I, God, I don't, they didn't have a staff of writers, they didn't have any writers, you know, they had people that the, you know, agents that would suggest things or whatever, but, right. you know, a lot of these guys and, and, 
that was great. That was a great part of it. And uh, that will be interesting to see as this gets bigger and bigger, uh, what it will evolve into. But do you think that it is, I shouldn't even say it's not going to be a threat to the WWE, but how you think it will impact uh, the WWE? Because you already see a lot of these these guys, some guys are turning down offers to go to NXT now. Yeah, I think it, it will make them respect the independent wrestler a little more. Uh, and I think that's uh, important, you know, like, uh, you know, years ago, I was just like, I can't, there were so many great shows that I was a part of. And I would be like, if I'm WWE, why aren't you sending scouts? Like I was having all these fun matches and connecting with the mm-hmm. crowd. And I was just like, well, no one, it's not like anyone will ever know that they're, they're just in their own bubble. And then finally, like Regal started going to PWGs and then all of a sudden they started getting a lot of their big stars. And so I think that was the first of like respecting the independence and not like, just being saying it's just you know a ragtag group of guys or whatever and mm. and you, respecting where the future is instead of scouting the NFL you know you scout the ones who are doing it and who will, who will be good and have this love for it so uh, I, I think that's what comes of it is a little more respect for the independent and the independent wrestler yeah and it's it's going to be uh, fun to watch what happens with uh, this new organization that Cody and the Young Bucks have put together uh, and and how it will impact the industry. Um, Colt, it's really been awesome uh, talking with you. And I tell you, I mean, like, like I said, I, I, I really admire not just what you've done in the ring, but of, uh, with the podcast, because uh, you're one of the, the people who really started this and, uh, and have kept with it. And I know you, it's immensely popular, uh, really giving that perspective from the ring. And it's fun to listen to because, you know, all the different sides you show. When you're out there at a show, you know, you're talking to guys, so you really get a great feel. And it's, and, and uh, you know, there's so many wrestling podcasts out there, and it's the ones that are really unique to me that stand out. And, and uh, uh, the art of wrestling is definitely one of those, folks. You, if you haven't listened to it yet, you should. And I'm sure you can get that in all. Uh, you get it from all the outlets. But uh, man, over 400 episodes. I don't know what the number is now, right? Well, uh, you know, so I have I've changed it up. Uh, in the beginning, it's been a year now. Last March, I changed it up from. Uh, Back in you know for seven so years, I would talk with with one of the wrestlers, a wrestling personality, for you yeah. for a long form conversation, much like this. And um, you know, I, I, it's kind of sad that uh, we're building this uh, relationship now. As I, I would have loved to have you bound back in the day, you would have been perfect for it. Um, but now I've I, I felt that I've kind of went through everybody, and so I've changed it into yeah. a a documentary type style of podcast, which again. In my head, it's um, moving forward in the in the world of podcasting, something that nobody's doing. I'm on the road every single week. I'm in different places all over the world. I'm doing different experiences. So I was able yeah. – so now every week uh, I'm talking to – the same way I'm talking to my wrestling fans I'm ta- or, or my friends. You know, uh, when we're uh, backstage, uh, Tommy Dreamer, Billy Gunn, you know, the Young Bucks, Cody, kind of talking about what's happening in the moment where we're at. And sometimes it's really fun. Like I've done shows like uh, I went to China. I went to Japan. Uh, I, I went all over Canada. I did shows at the fair. Um, I did shows at a, at a Native American reserve. And so it's kind of cool. You get to real, you know, it was slice of life before, but it's real slice of life now. Yeah. And, um, and it's, it's pretty short. It's, uh, it's, you know, anywhere it goes from like 30 to 40 minutes. So it's really easy. It's digestible and easy to listen to. And yeah, the art of wrestling every single Thursday. Yeah, and, I, and as I mentioned at the top of this conversation, that uh, you are always adapting, uh, always evolving, and uh, that 
that's awesome with the podcast. That's because it, it it's always changing. That's you know I've been at this now for a year and a half, which is amazing to me uh, that uh, we're approaching a hundred episodes. But it's it it's evolved with me. And I started out with with hacksaw. It was just so kind of a one on one. And then uh, you know hacksaw's all on the road every week. It was tough to get him you know to uh, be involved. And so we started having guests on. We we've, we've had a great. Uh, run of guests, but like you said, you know, it's sometimes it's tough to get people. You run out of people to talk to, and right. we're starting to evolve a little bit. And I love doing these themed uh, podcasts now. But when I get, you know, uh, someone who's really intriguing, uh, like Colt Cabana, I I, I I seize the opportunity. But I will certainly be listening. And I, are you working on any, uh, you know, uh, video documentaries? Any more of those documentaries coming out anytime well, soon? They're 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 hard and they're getting more costly. But uh, yeah. I. I, I want it. There was two ones that I want to do. I, I'd like to do one in Japan and I'd like to do one at, at the camps. And I think the camps uh-huh. one is, is more, um, realistic. Um, but it is, you know, it, that's about flying over my, my camera guy and, um, just a lot that goes into it, especially, you know, it's one thing flying him from Philly to Chicago. It's another thing flying him, you know, to London and then traveling around. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think it would be worth it. I think people would, would, really be into it i think it's a look that no one's really really dove into that much uh and like you know the same way that it piqued your interest i think it's it's uh something that would pique a lot of people's interest so that's maybe you know maybe that's the next thing i don't know <laughs> well i think uh, the wwe network would love something like that uh maybe we'll if they're listening yeah put in a word call to call because yeah that'd be uh that'd be great they're always looking for great documentaries and i would love to hear more like i said when i first heard about those camps and like that and they're run the same way still to this day. It's it still works like that. Still, still the Butlins have been upgraded a little bit. Yeah. But yeah. there's there's also other. I mean, it's not just Butlins. There's Pontlins and Havens, and there's just like little small ones. There's yeah. you know it, it could be in front of. Uh, I, I've done it in front of fifteen hundred, two thousand people at a Butlins, and I've done it in front of like fifty people at a at a yeah. trailer park camp. So it's just oh, always awesome. Different. Yeah. That's... All right. So uh, just shout out to all the ways folks can get a hold of you and. Uh, uh, you know, even, even with the, the, uh, wrestling road diaries, how, fo- how can folks get your merchandise and how yeah. can they keep following you? Twitter and Instagram at Colt Cabana. Give me a follow. Uh, I also have a YouTube channel, uh, Colt Cabana wrestling. I, I throw stuff up in there all the time. My podcast, the art of wrestling, wherever you get podcasts from, uh, it, it, all the links and everything is available at coltcabana.com. And that will lead you to coltmerch.com and digitalcult.com. If you want to download the, the 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 movies, or if you want to buy a physical hard copy, I'll sign I saw I'll sign it and I'll send it out myself. That's right. All encompassing the universe of Colt Cabana. Colt, thank you so much, man. It has really been fantastic talking to you. I hope I, I'll get you back when you've got uh, the next big project done. Yeah, pleasure is all mine. I got one question for you. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so Lord Alfred Hayes, I'm a huge fan of British wrestling. Uh, would he ever talk about wanting to get back in the ring or any, or do anything? I I know it was maybe later in his years, but. Well, you know, at that point, and if he was like Freddie Blassie, you know, just about every part of their body that was, that actually moved at some point had been fused, uh, through, uh, but yeah, Alfred, you know, uh, he, he, given the opportunity, I think he would have loved to, you know, those guys just never knew, you know, knew, you know, really you can't do this anymore, Yeah. but I, I think absolutely. And you know, a lot of people didn't understand. They never really got to see what a tremendous heel Alfred Hayes was. All yeah. they really saw was, you know, the, uh, 
the the personality, the kind of baby face announcer, but boy, was he a great heel. I don't know if you've seen some of the video from back in the day, but he was very good. I loved Al. I mean, I loved Lord Alfred Hayes as a kid. And then when I really, really started studying British wrestling and I saw Judo Al Hayes. Judo, I was going to just say Judo Al Hayes. And then I was like, that can't be. And I was like, oh my God, it is. That's wild. Oh, and some of the matches, he's just. Great heel. And when you could really, you know, they had those matches that would last 30 minutes or whatever, and they would just drag on that drama. <laughs> and he was just, you know, the the arrogant Englishman. And, uh, you know, he was. He, and he was also he was a judo champion that people, a lot of people didn't know. And and, a, and a, a real lord. He was a lordship. There was no, that was not a gimmick. So, Is that right? Yeah. Just a fascinating guy. I miss him. Miss yeah. him very much. I feel he's somebody that, that uh, we don't talk about enough. So that's No, cool. we don't. Yeah, you're keep, keeping them alive. I like it. All right, man. It's been awesome talking to you. Let's do it again. Let's do it.